City University Television presents the American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the Theatre. This seminar, production. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars, now in their 30th year, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today's seminar is devoted to the production of shows from the original concept through all the steps it takes to bring them to the stage. Our panel consists of six of the ever-increasing number of women producers. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theatre Wing, and now with great pleasure let me introduce our moderator for the seminar, the successful producer, Own Wright, and the Vice President of the Board of Directors of the American Theatre Wing, Dasha Epstein. Thank you. And now I would really like to introduce this very accomplished panel of producers that are sitting here, starting with Liz McCann, Tisa Chang, Daryl Roth, Amy Niederlander, Fran Weisler, and Elizabeth Williams. Hello. I promise you that we did not collaborate on color coordination here. <laughs> However, I really feel so proud to be here with all my colleagues and to know that our voices are listened to and respected most of the time in what is predominantly a male-oriented business. I had dinner last night with a Broadway columnist, Michael Riedel, and he informed me and made me aware that the three biggest hits right now on Broadway are driven by women. Mamma Mia, produced by Judy Kramer, Hairspray, produced by Margot Lyon, and Moving Out, created by Twyla Tharp. And yet, when I was scanning the internet the other night, I saw on a channel, an e-news entertainment about women that said representation of women in the theater has plummeted. This is hard to believe when I look at all my colleagues here who are so accomplished and have worked in this business for a while. They'll tell you their stories. Liz, I'd like you to start. You're a veteran of the theater. That doesn't mean that you're old. But 40 years and 40, produ 40 productions on Broadway and off 20 Broadway. 20 years and 40 productions. No, okay, we'll do it that way. <laughs> and also, you're a producer of the Tony Awards. Is this article true in your opinion? And what big differences are there now and when you first started? Well, when you say plummet, I mean, I think Oh, dear. I mean, for, there's always been women producers in the theater. I mean, they've always been around. Um, I think there have been, uh, they're more visible lately. Um, I, I think they're treated more as professional producers. Um, gee, I don't, I don't know. I just 
thinking here, looking around this panel, you want to know how people start. And I try to remember the first time I met Fran Weisler. And, you know, she's a very distinguished producer, and Chicago is one of her great successes. I met Fran because she was producing out of the back of a bus in New Jersey. Remember? Yes. <laughs> and I was running the Garden State Arts Center for the Needlelander Organization. Running is too grand a word. But I was, <laughs> I was in charge of finding product to put on the stage of the Garden State Arts Center. And Fran and her husband had a Shakespearean touring company, which they took around the high schools of New Jersey. And that is how she and I first met. And so how did she start producing? She started producing off the back of a bus in New Jersey. And, you know, I think people start producing because they want to produce, and they find a way to do it. And Fran found it on the back of a bus. And uh, Tisa, I met her when she was a young, did I get it right? Yes, young I dancer. A, a young and dancer. Dancer. And I was working for a ne'er-do-well bus and truck producer, which was really the low of the low was bus and truck It was producer. the national tour of Funny Thing Happened on the All Way right. to the Forum. You could call it a national tour. They paid me as if it was a bus and truck, so I assumed. I knew. I knew the guy I was working for was kind of crooked. But anyway, she was a young dancer in the company. A funny thing happened on the way to the Forum. And that's where I met her. And then many years later, we toured Russia together. Yep. And so every woman in this room I've known at various points in their career and their lives. And so how do you begin? Where do you start? You just start. You get up one morning and you say, this is my profession. And Tisa, you started a different way. You went a different route. Yeah, you started I, I, the Pan-Asian. Well, I began directors. as a dancer and actress on Broadway and off-Broadway, experimental theater, films, television. I was a really aspiring. I mean, I was born in China, but I, I grew up in New York, and I have been seeing theater for 40 years. So my entry, entry was as a performer. But I segue to directing and producing in uh, the 70s when I founded Pan-Asian Theater 25 years ago because as an act of artistic exploration is a natural extension of my uh, uh, interests as well as an act of empowerment. I do think that producing gives me uh, such an overview. You know, you have to be willing to take responsibility. I think that's, that's what it is. You have to love to take responsibility as a producer because you really have to... I now understand how difficult it is to, I mean, as a performer, I never could quite understand what went on behind the scenes. But you, one really has to, uh, in producing, uh, has ha have the acumen of business as well as a sense, aesthetic uh, sense, as well as dealing with people. And just the, the, the unions and the paperwork, um, the fundraising, uh, the marketing, it's, it's just amazing. So. It, it is juggling a lot of balls in the air, but, um, you know, I guess I, I guess I sort of, I'm sort of bossy, so I, I like, <laughs> I like <laughs> taking that. Tisa, can I ask you a question? Most of the not-for-profits are dominated by men, and you are both director and producer for the Pan-Asian Repertory. Have you found that difficult in raising money when you go to the deep pockets? Uh, it's always, it's always difficult raising money. Um, I, think as a, I think because Pan-Asian has such a unique mission and artistic vision uh, that it's been 
that it has opened some opportunities for me. I mean, we do such an, uh, a unique repertoire of plays uh, related to Asia, Asian Americans, um, as a uh, forum for showcasing new, new talent. So I think that that has helped a lot. But there's no question that only in the last 10, 15, 20 years, I think, I've, I feel we have seen a, a not a plummeting, but uh, an expansion of opportunities for women. Certainly, as I sit on the directors um, <coughs> board of exec uh, directors, also uh, SSDC board, and I think we have a lot more um, uh, women directors now. And that's again, I think, because women do like to take uh, action and responsibility. I think that there's a different way that we very often deal with problems, problem solving. Right, and Fran, I'm going to jump over here for a minute because mm -hmm. you produce with your husband, Barry Weisler, and have been producing, as Liz said, for a wonderfully long time and wonderful shows. And um, I would like to ask you a question. First of all, I went to Chicago and I told the mayor there that he should really erect a statue in honor of Barry and Frank <laughs> Weisler because you have taken Chicago all over the world. <laughs> Thank God. And on the road all over. But did you ever feel, I want you to know, to know if you ever felt that a male colleague or a part of your creative or artistic team favored Barry simply because he was a man? And did you ever have any trouble with that? And how did you ever handle that? And tell us some story about it. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I, I, we've always, I've had trouble with that, but I've always ignored it, to tell you the truth. Uh, I did have one interesting uh, story that happened to us. We happened to produce Zorba with Anthony Quinn. And we took it on the road, and we took it to Broadway. And it played for four years. So we really got to know each other. For the first two years that we worked in that show, Tony would only talk to Barry. And I used to say, I used to come into his dressing room and do the producer thing. I thought I had taste and was reasonably talented. And I would say, Tony, you know, I think maybe you ought to do this, blah, blah, blah. And he'd say, maybe so, I'll talk to Barry about it. So, and he continued <coughs> to do that, and that was for two years. He never addressed me. I mean, he literally never addressed me. Now, of course, he was Mexican-Irish, and he had grown up in Mexico, where women at that time walked three steps behind the guy anyway. Mm -hmm. So he really did, did um, feel that we belonged in the kitchen and the bedroom, and he didn't spend that much time intellectualizing with us. Anyway, two years passed, and I couldn't stand it anymore, so I invited him to the Russian Tea Room, which was very big time then. And we sat in the first booth, and I said, Barry and I want to take you out to lunch. So he gets there, and there's only me. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and if I tell you that my, my heart was beating so fast, and this big guy comes in, everybody's asking for his autograph, and he had this raw animal um, attraction for everyone. And he sat down and said to me, so where's Barry? And I said, he's not coming. I said, you won't, you've just got me. And, I, and he said, well, why isn't he coming? I mean, and he started literally to get up. And I, I remember <laughs> taking my hand on his shoulder and sitting him down and saying, listen, I've spent two years with you. I really like you. I think you're wildly talented. But a lot of the decisions about your career, what's happening in this show 
I'm making along with Barry. And I want to spend time with you. I want you to talk to me. I want you to recognize me. I know I'm a woman, but I'm not that bad because I'm a woman. I said, so, so let's start a dialogue. And I said it much looser than I'm saying it now. And we started to talk, and we spent two hours together. And subsequently, he never stopped calling me. I <laughs> thought I would die. He used to call at 11 at night. He used to call <laughs> at 9 in the morning. But we developed a relationship. But that is really true, where he believed the man was more important than the woman. We all proved him wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Do any of you have any other so-called horror stories about being rejected because you were a woman in this business? Well, think of something like that? I'd like to butt in at this point and just make the point that um, the Tony Awards, and Antoinette Perry was named for this woman who was a director, an actress, and a producer, and an educator. But nobody ever talked to her in terms of being a woman actress, director, producer. She was a producer. And that's, I think, what we should all talk about today. You're producers. You're not women producers. You're all producers, and you're all in a trade that recognizes your experience and what you've done. And, and I, I think I'd like to forget about the designation of women here. Okay? Having well, said that, now you can go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think basically uh, we all, whether... It is not about gender. It's about passion in the theater, commitment to the theater, and love of the theater. And what you do. And what you do, and how well you do it. Um, but I have a question here, and uh, it's a rather question, difficult question, because today things are so very, very different than they were when you started to produce, when fans started to produce. And I'd like to ask Dara Roth, who is a wonderful producer and is one a lot of awards. How do you make a living as a producer today if you don't have private income, especially today when it can take six years or more to get a show on the road? And Daryl, as we all know when we look at a playbill, there may be sometimes 15 producers above the title of the show, and they're listed as producers. And you can get your name over the title as a producer, but how difficult is it, and what do you do to gain respect, which you certainly have from this community, as a real online producer rather than an angel? Well, it's a good question, and I think it is specific to me, because when I started producing in 1987-88 season, um, I was living in New Jersey, raising my family, um, married to a man who had been uh, you know, who is a successful businessman. And I was looked at uh, in a way that was less than professional, I would say. You know, okay, here's this lady from New Jersey. She thinks she knows what she's doing. You know, she doesn't have to worry about, let's say, you know, feeding her children from producing. And um, I think it was a challenge for me to have to prove, uh, to prove my worth and to prove my uh, commitment and my tenacity in theater was real. And unfortunately, people let that get in the way. And, um, you know, I was troubled by it for a long time, and sometimes I still am troubled by it. But, you know, it's stupid to hold it against me, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm doing my best. <laughs> and I think when people come into theater 
whatever their means are, it's almost irrelevant because what you need is the passion to produce. You need to be able to raise money. If it's not your own money, you need to supplement it with investors. So you have to share that enthusiasm. And you have to really work hard and know that theater is not the best way to make a living. Whether you come to it you know, with, with, uh, with less than worry about how you're going to make a living, it's still not the all-time best way to make a living. You, people do it for very different reasons. People don't do it to get rich. If you're lucky enough to have a successful play or musical happening and you can make a great, you know, success of it financially, that really isn't the main event, you know. That's the icing. That's the beauty of it. That's, that's what proves the fact that all of this can really work in a financial way. But I don't think that's the impetus, nor is that the first priority for people to produce. Um, so I guess... No. I have a question, actually, for Daryl and, and, and the other ladies. Um, how much artistic um, input do you give to, a, to your projects? Because as artistic producing director at Pan Asian, I, I, am, I have a lot of uh, artistic oversight, and it's very important to me. So I'd love to ask, do you, because I feel that's an important aspect of producing, and so I just wonder, do you have, uh, do you, you of course read the script, and you, but do you also um, have input and uh, decision-making on all the designers and actors? And so that's my, my interest in asking. Cer absolutely, certainly in collaboration with your, you know, your director or your creative team. But, I mean, what w I mean we are doing what's an interesting blend of commerce and art. And obviously the two have to be perfectly balanced. Um, you're in a different position in a in your not-for-profit situation, and obviously you're the major duomo there, so you you I'm sure have much more of the the call on that. But we collab obviously we collaborate with our directors, and um, I know that Anita Waxman, my partner, and I are very much involved in the notion of um, giving notes on the text, choosing the project, sometimes actually taking it to the creative people. That's actually what makes my heart beat faster. And um, not just the commerce, but the commerce certainly is is the is a challenging part as well. Do actors take your notes well? Actor, oh, I don't go to the actor. Okay. I do it through the director. I have to say that I, I'm a real believer in the one voice. Mm -hmm. Good for you. Yeah, and and if we have a lot of producers on the project, you know, it's whomever was the the lead producer, the instigator of the project, who usually is the the voice. And you know, invariably, you're going to end up in a situation where you're standing by. The, someone and you may give a note, but I try very, try to I try to adhere to that, giving it to the director and letting him or her. Um, Elizabeth, you've also been very very instrumental in the financial end of raising money mm -hmm. for producers and for yourself. And have you ever found that there was any resistance as a lead producer when you go to the institutions such as Clear Channel or Disney? And you have an idea, they have an idea how they want to have it done. Mm -hmm. And since they're putting up, or you have asked them as investors to put up quite a bit of money, can you hold on to your vision mm. of the project if they want it differently? I think you have to structure it from the beginning so that you in some way have, have that control. Um, because I'll, I think one of the you know, I think it would be great to have a sort of a philosophical discussion here about, you know, how I mean, women, women have been, as Liz said, women producers have been involved in the theater forever. And I've been doing this since the late 80s, which feels to me a long time, but not very long. 
And I can't tell you how many times people have called yearly, I think all of us, and said, let's discuss women producers in the theater as if we were a new thing. Um, but I think it's because people like Teresa Halprin, um, who was at the theater at the Guild, that we don't have to be the front people necessarily. I don't think we demand that as regularly, as long as the artistic goals and the integrity of the project um, are upheld. And I think that collaborative nature and that ability to communicate and that ability to nurture is is a culture that we women share in. Mm -hmm. And we bring that to the table, and therefore we can work with men in a way where, you know, now when I read something and I have an aha moment, like a Gloria Steinem essay, where she points out, um, for example, that if a woman has an idea, the man at the table will normally take that idea as their own. I'm absolutely happy if it's a good idea if somebody else takes it and helps it get, you know, get, get put into place. And I think a lot of us are characterized by that. We want acknowledgement from each other, but don't have to have um, complete claim on it. Um, so, yes, there have been problems. There, there, I, don't, I don't think any of us here can ever say that we haven't had problems working with men, but we've also, I've also had problems working with women, so, yeah. If you find two equally competent actors or directors, do you feel, or a writer, do you feel it's your obligation and your, your, your feeling to hire the woman or oh. as a... Uh, I prefer to work with women, <laughs> but if they're not artistically suited to that project, you know, it's all conceptual for me. Mm -hmm. It has to be that they do the kind of work that's right for that project. I also mm -hmm. think um, the producer, a show starts out with somebody finding out what, it's, what the project is. And that's the first thing a producer has to do is find out what are we producing. And there's a million ways that that happens and that something comes to you. And I think we're, we are the muscle, certainly first, because we pick the director and the scenic designers and the costumers with the director, etc., to make it happen. But then the first day you walk into that rehearsal room, it's the director. And you've got to relinquish a lot of what you do and give it to the director. And the first day of the first preview, that director has to sort of give it to the actors. And ultimately, it becomes the property of the audience. I've always felt that. It's, mm -hmm. and, 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 and we have to give it up. But we do begin it all. And I think the test of of a really good producer is who <coughs> you surround yourself with, particularly with good directors. I notice not too many people here wanted to be directors, just one or two. But the director, to me, is the most important element um, of, of, of the project. And of course, ha his work is 60% easier if he knows how to cast. Yeah. So your casting director becomes important and your director becomes important. Amy has been very quiet yes. during all of this. <laughs> no, I'm just. <laughs> Amy's a new, no reason in young producer and part of the Niederlander family, so she's had a little background and a little exposure. And tell us how you feel about. I know you've taken shows on tour and on the road, and you're sort of getting your feet wet uh -huh. in that division, which Fran started and Liz started. How do you feel about that? Well, the shows that I've been involved with on the road originated in New York. Um, either off-Broadway or Broadway um, and 
as a producer, when you're looking at a show to get involved with, the life of it is what you really need to look at. And uh, whether or not it starts on the road and then comes into New York and then goes back out on the road or you, you know, domestically or you take it abroad, um, the whole life is what you really have to, you know, consider. And uh, I think that it's all uh, part of um, what we do, of what we do. So it's wonderful. Amy, when you go on the road, do you find that the public is more receptive to a show that they are familiar with? Because today, there are so many revivals, and because of the costs having escalated for a ticket, mm -hmm. I think that producers, we feel safer with a show that already has had affirmation of success attached to it. So now, what happens to the risk? Because the costs are so high, where are the new shows? Are they there off-Broadway? They start probably in a not-for-profit theater, which is wonderful. Right. But how do you find the road? Um, do you find them responsive to a new show that is being tested on the road? I think that when you take a new show out of town before you come into New York, that uh, a lot of, of how that town, the local promoter, is going to um, receive even the idea and then go out and promote it is taking into consideration what the, what the show is, what the property is, who's attached, who's developing it, who's creating it. And, uh, be it that the producer has a terrific track record or you bring in uh, members of the creative team who have certainly proven that what they put together uh, becomes quite popular. So there's a lot of consideration. I mean, the newer works, you know, you're right on when you were saying that uh, where are the, new, the brand new works coming from, and it is from the not-for-profits, where uh, you have built-in subscription audiences looking for new works, knowing that that's what they're getting. Um, because when you go into the larger commercial theaters, you know, 2,000 seats, 3,000 seats, uh, you're right again in saying that these people, the ticket price is high, they want something that has been proven in New York to be a success, so that they, the odds of their enjoying their evening are much higher, or something that they already know, such as a revival. So finding an original, something that's original, uh, going into a multi-thousand seat venue prior to coming to New York, I think is very unique. If I could add something to that, um, we did last season a tour of B. Arthur, and another good way to ensure that the road on its way into New York works is by having a major person that is well recognized out there in the world, mm -hmm. and then they're you know embraced, and you gain that steam rolling into New York. So it can work more easily, I think, with someone very visible and someone well known and well loved, as opposed to starting a new play just out there in the world. That's a lot riskier unless it's within the safety home of a, a regional not-for-profit mm -hmm. theater. Well, Fran, you have kept so many plays going by putting in a name that is familiar to people and a big name. And um, for the most part, it's worked for you. Yeah. Uh, for the most, I, 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 I wish um, it weren't such an easy formula. And it is much less risk as a producer, etc. But if you have a name show and a name actor, it's going to sell tickets than if you're doing Sadie Gluck and uh, God knows what. It's going to sell tickets on the road easier. Certainly not, not in New York. And I think what we really 
need today and are getting today are writers and um, and the and people that are writing new shows and I think as you said Amy that a lot of it does begin in nonprofit theater where people can take a chance and we're not talking about millions of dollars on Broadway to invest in a new show that can fail so that's why we always take everything sort of out on the road first I'd love to ask how you um, all uh, select your projects. What are the criteria that you apply to, 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 to backing and producing a show? Because, again, it's easier for, 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 for me because um, our vision is pretty, pretty defined and we don't, we don't seek to sustain it in thousand-seat theaters forever. So, but I just wonder what criteria, because you mentioned something about in order to be a commercial success, you really do want it to su sustain for a long, long time. Um, in New York and elsewhere, and uh, perhaps forever, um, and and you mentioned uh, the, the the star star aspect, the celebrity mm -hmm. aspect. But I wonder, how do you find your projects, though? Um, I mean, what is it? Personal uh, choice as does does personal choice enter? Into I don't know. Something France said got me thinking. I mean. Theater is risk. That's what it's all about. There are no hits that weren't once risks. In France, it's there, and I remember, because I was at City Center when Chicago opened, at City Center, and Fran and her husband wanted to bring it to Broadway. Number one, the conventional wisdom was no one would go to see a concert, and it came out of City Center. And who would go to see that? And Chicago had not been a success on Broadway the first time around. And I think you had, what, three theaters on Broadway? She was on tour in New York because no one would give her a house on an open-end run. Now, now everybody sits back and says, well, Chicago. But, <laughs> you know, it's very tricky. I mean, I can remember the time when the Schuberts took a risk on Cats. Now, you look at me crazy, like Cats was a risk. Yes, it was at that moment. You don't want to produce a musical with T.S. Eliot lyrics. Come on. And, I mean, I can remember the late Bernie Jacobs taking the album, London album of Cats, and playing it for his grandchildren and coming back and saying, yeah, kids can understand this. Now, there is no animal that isn't a risk, really. There is no foolproof formula. I can't, every time I've done something that can't miss, it blows up in my face <laughs> without fail. Whenever I do something somewhat out of the, I mean, it's just there. Your whole life, if you want to be in the theater, is the fun of never knowing what's going to happen in a million dreams, in a million years. And that's the fun of it. And, um, and the surprise. And the surprise. And it's what keeps us all going. It's like, hey, Maybe now the next turn is mine, and um, it, uh, it's, it's a very wise right. man that I worked with once, Hume Cronin, said to me, a career in the theater is like a circle. Be mm. nervous when you're up here, because it's going to swing you down. <laughs> when you're down here, you're going to be swung up. <laughs> and that is what you better all like, is to be on that mm -hmm. Ferris wheel. Because that's what you're on in the theater all you the time. You know, honey, we, had, we um, had a show that we knew was going to be a huge success, <laughs> which is how smart we are. So we, it was Carrie. And if you remember, <laughs> you remember the, what Carrie was about. And, and uh, I think it's being revived now as a movie. 
But anyway, we, we were going to have the rights to that, and we were beside ourselves with excitement because that was like a great idea. And it was our idea to have the first horror, real horror theater experience in, 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 um, in theater. So we had this director who's English and who shall remain nameless. And I remember sitting with him in New York and saying, we're going to do this show. And when you, th when you do this show and you think about the kids and everybody in high school <coughs> and everything that goes with it, think Greece. And that's the kind of thing you should be thinking about. And he said, great, great. So a few months went by and we got a call from the director and the scenic designer and the costumer. And they told us, come to... London, we now are going to put this together for you. We'd like to show you all the sets and costumes, the models, and the sketches. So we get in a plane and we're beside ourselves. And we were much younger then, and we were um, um, not as smart. <laughs> anyway, we, we get there, and they take out all these wonderful photo, uh, uh, pictures. And I noticed in the gym scene, everybody was wearing things that like tied on the side and that uh, had, had strange little uh, designs on them, and nothing looked like we thought it would look. We wanted it to be like with headbands and everybody looking like you were in a gym and we were going to try to get it all in Saks' window or something. And I said, I don't understand these things with the little skirts and stuff. And he said, well, you said think Greece. I said, <laughs> the show, not the country. <laughs> And, and we, with, we withdrew, we withdrew. We never, ever produced Carrie. Because <laughs> that's exactly what happened. Exactly uh, what happened. But I think to answer, you know, uh, to answer your question. <laughs> that's a great story. That's true. I think to answer your question, though, when you're looking, when a producer is, is considering a project, you have to respond to it yourself and be passionate about it. You need to have that passion to bring, to make other people care. If you choose something because, oh, it's got someone famous in it, but you don't really like it, the public's going to know that. The press is going to know that. It's not going to work. They're, you're the driving force, as Fran was saying, you know, you're, you, you're choosing your director. You're, you know, collaborating and choosing the creative team. And uh, you have to... You have to love what you're doing. You're going to have to you're be, be there. with it a long you're time. You're going to have to be there all the time. All and the time. And if you don't like it, you're in trouble. Right. <laughs> and I think this is actually, a, a, going back to Dasha, your question about being women, I think actually this is very significant because women have a more uh, emotional connection, perhaps, to the material. Um, earlier you asked I, uh, me about the difficulties of entering the American theater professionally. And um, there is that term, oh boy network. And I think that it has, has been very difficult for me to have the connections and the access um, to a lot of, uh, uh, because I understand that a lot of the uh, traditional male producers, they would get together in clubs and afterwards and talk to each other. It's sort of like clubby, and they would talk about what projects they should be doing. And I think that, you know, we are probably um, more individualistically um, connected to the material. Well, also. I disagree with you on one thing. I, I don't think just because we're women, women are more emotionally connected to the material. I've known a lot of men who are producers who are just as emotionally committed to the plays they produce as we are. Uh, so I, I, I disagree with you on that point. I think we have a, a lot of gifts we bring, but, you know, I, 
I just know, and I've been there with men who suffer just as much as we suffer when something doesn't work. So on that point, I disagree with you. Um, yes, historically, you know, historically, the, the, most of the theaters were owned by men, and um, I would say early on there was a sort of feeling that there was most there were very few, for example, stage managers. There were very few. Now, every time you turn around, there are women stage mm -hmm. managers. Uh, there were very few company managers. There were no general managers. Now, there are women general managers all over the place. There have been a lot of, uh, because women suddenly became aware there was an opportunity there. That it's was part all. of the time. It's part of our time. It was part of our time. When, uh, in my early days, you know, the first time, um, I don't know if I dare tell the story. I don't think I will. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> why not? Well, <laughs> I mean, I was always deeply conscious of, you know, this thought that I was a woman, and on top of it, I was, you know, I was this Irish kid, and most of the theater owners were not only men, but they were Jewish. And so um, I just always wanted to feel that I was one of the gang. And I was in a meeting in the Schubert office one day, and there were all the men in their suits and regalia, and the late Bernie Jacobs stood up and he said, I got to take a leak. And I thought, oh, my dear, he said that in front of me. <laughs> like my, 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 my civility as a woman was just so offended that a man would publicly say he had to take a leak. So he said, come on, Bill, we got to take a leak. So they left. And I sit there and I thought, gee, I'm really one of them now, right? <laughs> they mention in front of me that they're going to take a leak. And they come back in and they say, okay, well, we can go to lunch now. Did I said, you Wait feel equal? Yeah. Did you feel equal at I that felt point? equal at that of point. Course. Then they all come back from the men's room. And I said, they said, well, we're going out to lunch. I said, but what about the deal we've discussing here? And they said, oh, we finished it up in the men's room. Oh. And I, oh. <laughs> so I thought, ah, oh, well, there you go. I mean, it, it, you know, and I used to say, that, that was a moment for some bizarre reason I felt I had crashed the barrier of, of, uh, of being part of the boys club. I, That's a great in creating the show, where do you start? You, get, you have to have money, right? No, you have to have a product. The you idea. have to have You have to have, have, to have, to have whatever the money it is. Or the money and, and, and the money. And you have, have to have, have the vision. Show. And the vision of how you are going to well, do it. Then you put the package. Of what you do. You're going to, you're now, you have a project. What's your next step? You have to get the money. All right. I, I do. I mean, right. I can't speak for anyone else. But you have to be able to produce it. And once you know that you are in that position, the longer you're in business, the luckier you are. Because at one time when Barry and I started, we couldn't raise, I mean, it killed us to raise money. It was really, really hard. The longer you're in business, and if you're lucky and you have a few hits, which thank God we did Chicago, all our Chicago investors are staying with us, and that was six years ago. So we are able to continue to, even though we had a bomb in a show called Susical, which I loved and everybody hated, those investors are still staying with us for Chicago. So you have to do that. And then, of course, I really think when you talked about vision, absolutely, but I think you really have to think about, which I said earlier, who is going to direct this? Mm -hmm. And I believe but that comes after you have the project, though. Yes. Right. Before yes. the money, yes. I think. Yes. And I would have to say yeah. that yeah. projects come in so many different ways. Sometimes you see something in a small not for profit theater and you want to give it commercial life. So you've got a play that's already 
attached right. in terms of a director and maybe a creative team, and you that's one way to move it. Yeah. And that's one way that commercial producers like all of us might move forward. There's another way where you could start with an idea on the other end of the spectrum and bring it to someone, bring it to a director and a writer. That's square one. There's another way that you can just read a play that was sent to you. There's another way that you know, you have relationships with playwrights, and so you do one play of theirs, and they come to you with the next play. And, you know, you want to build relationships and loyalty, and so you go that way. So there's so many ways that plays get born, if that's a way to express it. What about agents? Do they submit plays? Do often, yes. Mm -hmm. often. And do you listen to them or do you read them? Yes. I sure. Mm -hmm. Usually, if you have people in your office, we call them readers, and, and those people, uh, we're very lucky now, we have three people that... Are, are project developers, and what they do is read all those scripts, go to every off-off-off-off-Broadway show, go to Cleveland, go to Des Moines, go wherever they have to go to be looking for product. But you, you, well, it's difficult to take unsolicited manuscripts, I'm sure yeah. you'll agree. I mean, yeah. normally, normally we take work that, from someone that we know who's mm -hmm. referred it or by a creative person with whom we have a relationship, at least our office does, mm -hmm. or you're just overwhelmed. And on the whole, we have projects that we're developing that are our primary interest, and um, a relationship that we signed on to the Dunmore Warehouse in London because we thought their vision was one that we shared. So we have a first look deal with the Dunmore Warehouse, Anita and I, in which we support them and then have the ability to become involved commercially with their projects. And then on the other hand, we have a series of, of musicals that we've been developing from their inception, as well as revivals that we're um, working on that, that have, you know, um, preoccupy us most of the time. So there, there's so many different mm -hmm. ways, but you, you can begin with an idea and not very much money and go to a, a playwright with that idea and develop it and then begin raising the money, or you can <coughs> have a musical revival that you want to have top, you know, top level director and, and um, choreographer involved with, and then obviously you're, you're talking about money from the get-go. Um, so How do you get your choice of director? How do you decide on which director? Uh, conceptually, I believe. It, it, has, it has to be an, an intellectual decision initially about the body. And that's the problem. You're talking about the body of someone's work, and that's one reason we have, I think, in our country such a problem with a great body of very skilled directors because they don't get the chance to work in the commercial theater as frequently. So we all have to go and see what's taking place in the not-for-profit realm to, um, to see the new, the new work of new directors and then to give them the opportunity to, to do work um, in the commercial arena. And the, uh, I think the asset, the plus side of nonprofits is that we are able to create our own projects, incubate them, develop them. Many artistic directors are very fine direct, uh, directors themselves. Pan-Asian, we have very often uh, developed, nurtured, created. Uh, Cambodia Agonistes, uh, a musical, uh, uh, play with music based on the Pol Pot years. Um, very strong uh, theme, obviously. Took us three years of preparation, two years before it came to the New York premiere. Then we toured for three years. So that's how we sustain life and create, but uh, uh, occasionally the, we will also bring uh, do Asian masterworks into translation, so then they become an American premiere, um, as well as a lot of new plays. I would also like to ask all of you later on about the involvement 
of large companies such as SFX or Clear Channel and their participation with the independent producer and um, exactly how much influence do they have monetarily or how much influence can, are we allowed to put in and want to put in in order to have them become a partner of ours. And of course, being in a uh, not-for-profit theater and doing the wonderful work that you do and all of us do, I think it is important to know exactly that financial end and participation of it. The producers that you see above the title of the show, they're now 15, 16, <laughs> 20 yes. producers. What do you promise them as a producer? What do you promise them to get their name above the title? And what does it mean? Is it a question of X number of dollars, you'll get this kind of billing? Sometimes, More, I think. Yes. Yes. Sometimes, Sometimes it is. Sometimes. Sometimes. It's somebody who just is a wonderful supporter of the arts, loves the theater, uh, wants their name associated with it, and uh, if they contribute a relatively substantial uh, percentage of the budget, then their name will appear on the project. And they get to go to the opening night party? They get to go to the opening night. They might be able to That's come. That's part of the carrot as well. And they get to meet you at the Tony Awards. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but There's when we get back, Amy, I'd like to ask you mm -hmm. as a young new producer and good producer, what advice would you give to a new ger generation of producers today? Because it's quite different, I think, than when Liz started, I started, Fran started, Elizabeth. And you are the young producers here today. Liz, what would you say? I think, I, I don't know. I, it is simply falling in love. That's all it is. You don't know why you fall in love. Everybody in this room, I'm sure, has been in love. Did you ever know why? When it was over, did you even know why it was over? I mean, and everybody in this room falls in love with something. They fall in love. You know, nobody can be conned quicker than a producer. I can be conned by a director and I can be conned by a writer quicker than anybody with all the experience I've had. So it's about falling in love. You just you just fall in love and you you the most I think thrilling moment uh, for Daryl and I was the first time we heard an Edward Albee play read aloud. And no one had heard it before but us. Only the two of us had heard that play. And it was like, that made everything very special, didn't it? Well, From then true. on. Because it's true. Where did you hear that? Was it no, it was just, we all, you know, know, we went through the usual process. We said to Edward, why don't we have a reading of the play? He said, what for? Can't you read? I said, yeah, I can read, but I like to hear it aloud. And he said, oh, I bet that's an idea of Daryl's. I mean, Edward likes to sort of play this game. Whenever I come up with something he doesn't like, he said, oh, you've been talking to Daryl, right? So Which I said, no, it's not Daryl's idea. So we just sat around yeah. a room like this with four or five actors. Um, and we were so moved, if I can add, we were so moved. I mean, I was sitting there with tissue, you know, and thinking, here I am crying in front of <laughs> Edward Albee, and he probably thinks, oh, God, she's really stable. Let's have her <laughs> produce this play. <laughs> How did you come to Edward Albee? We both came to Edward Albee at about the same time, I think. With Three um, Tall Women. Three Tall Women. Mm -hmm. And again, you talk about elements of risk. At the time, Edward Albee was a hack and a has-been. That's what he was considered mm -hmm. at that moment. 
and um, that's the cycle, the cycle, the cycle. For playwrights as well as producers. producers. Mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, so. You're right. But it's about it is about falling in love. We fell in love with a play called Falsettos that nobody yes. wanted to produce, mm -hmm. nobody wanted to direct, nobody would give us a theater. It was about, it was Jewish, it was homosexual, it was about AIDS. So those are three things that nobody was interested in. And, and nobody realized how, what a genius Bill Finn mm -hmm. was and how incredible his music was and how funny it was. At the end, of course, you got a kick in the stomach, but it was just an amazing show. And just to get it started, I mean, we fell in love with it, just as you say. We just, I used to just sing the lyrics. I used to be in the shower with it. I used to cry every time I read it. And nobody would give us the time of day, so ultimately, we put all our own money in it, except for one theater owner who made us sign personally, uh, so that if it failed, um, uh, we would lose everything. We gambled our entire career on that show. I don't think I've ever said that before, but we could have been out of business. And we're very resilient, and we probably would have figured out a way to start again. But that was a big deal for us. And when indeed the Tonys came and we won the best um, um, composer, the best lyricist, and the best book, we didn't win the best musical. I think you did. Oh, it was it crazy was for you. Crazy for you. <laughs> I wanted to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> but you had your speech I out. Know. <laughs> <laughs> But it, it but looked but as if yeah, you were. I know, I, we're winning, but, but it was a very exciting moment for us to have got, and, and because it was all our money, we got it back in 26 weeks, which is like unheard very of. Wow. So it was a, just a wonderful story, and it's exactly what Liz says. If you want something very badly. But there's another part of that, too, that I, I don't think you know, which relates somewhat to our conversations about touring. I went up to Hartford to see the production in Hartford. And I showed up on a Sunday afternoon in probably the most waspy-looking group of Hartford, Connecticut subscribers. And I watched them get on their feet at the end of the show. The most unlikely audience. There sure wasn't a Jew in the house. There sure wasn't a homosexual in the house. And there sure wasn't anybody with AIDS in the house. And they were on their feet applauding. And uh, the people in New York didn't get that. They didn't get it at all, the theater owners and everything. But seeing mm. that show with that audience, I was pretty sure you'd find an audience in New York. It's the, the same with Chicago. Nobody wanted Chicago. Mm. I mean, really, nobody wanted it. We couldn't get a theater. But sometimes you have to prove yourself. And, and if you love it, you can kind of push it on mm -hmm. forward. How do you do that? How does that happen? Well, I can use the example of Wit, which was a play that nobody wanted to produce commercially. It mm -hmm. had a wonderful not-for-profit existence, and it was well you know, received, but nobody wanted to touch it commercially. I mean, here it was, a play about a woman dying of ovarian cancer. You know, it just sort of didn't shine off hit. But much like Liz's reaction to watching that audience for Falsettos or Falsetto Land, it was unbelievable to watch people respond and relate and yeah it wasn't information they particularly thought they wanted to receive but it was so human and so universal that it broke all barriers and it was a theater experience for many people I know because I've been told that just stands you know as such an important moment 
changed a lot of people's lives, changed the way the medical profession deals with, with uh, their students, their nursing students, their medical students. A play like Wit, which you have to really just love so much, feel so passionate about that you're just going to do it no matter what, is what propels, I think, all of us in any given instance to go forward. It's not how do you do it. You know, you sort of can't worry about how. You just know you're going to. It, there's and a, then it a conviction. Daryl, I'm going to have to stop one minute, and I'd like to get back a little bit later on to the importance of marketing when we do a play. But for the meantime, right now, let's turn it over to Isabel. Before we get back to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminar on Production, I would like to remind you that these seminars are only one of the many year-round programs that the Wing undertakes. You're probably familiar with the American Theatre Wing's Tony Awards, which is given for achievement of excellence in the Broadway theatre. We also have important grants programs, providing aid to off and off-off Broadway theatres. We now offer six different scholarships, for promising students to pursue studies in the theater arts. And we have an extended career guide program for beginning professionals. As a long-established charity dating back from World War I and again in World War II, when we operate our famous stage or canteens, all of our programs are designed to reward and promote excellence in the theater, to introduce young people and their families to theater and the magic it unfolds. We take pride in the work we do and are grateful for our members and everyone whose contributions help make possible the dynamic programs of the American Theatre Wing. We are proud to be a part of this exciting industry as we continue to provide services to the theatre and to the community. And so now I'd like to return to our panel on production and our moderator, Gasha Epstein. Thank you. Thank you, Isabel. And thank you to all of you for this program. Um, I wanted to get into a little bit about how do you become a producer, how if you have a script, how do you get it produced, and with the costs so high today, where do you go, how do you go about this? And for a young producer, for a new producer, what would your advice be? Liz, would you? You like to start. Well, first of all, let me. <clears throat> a playwright needs a producer. A playwright has a vision. He has something he wants to tell a group of people collectively. Now, he's not a novelist. He doesn't sit home alone and, you know, write a novel and send it off to a publisher and maybe gets published. It a play cannot be realized without producers. <coughs> Producers who come along, contract the actors, pay the bills, develop an advertising campaign, and all of the things that are necessary for that writer's voice to be heard. So that's what we do. Now, we do it on Broadway in a very sophisticated way, but that is not the only way to produce. If, you know, I've known young actors who found a play that they wanted to see, and they ha hassled their family into putting up $10,000, which may seem like a lot. And they found a loft, and they did it. They were producers. They just did it. I mean, we have graduated up the line to doing it on a more sophisticated or higher-risk venture. But for those of you who think there may be... I, the best life you can leave, believe me, is in the theater. There is no better <laughs> life in the whole world. 
Amen. There, are, there are no more fascinating people, no more crazy people, <laughs> no more anything except in the theater. And I've had the best life ever. I've known Amy since she was a kid. I mean, I, and it, it's, you, 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 I tell you, that's how you produce. You, you read something and you think, well, I bet I can rent a hall. I can print out flyers on my baby brother's computer. And I'll hand them out in the neighborhood and people will come. You're a producer. That's what we do on a much more um, elegant neighborhood. And what we all do also, which is the one thing all producers have to learn to do, is we also sweep the dressing rooms. <laughs> I mean, because it's, it's that basic when you want to be a, a working producer. You have to know how to do it all and be prepared to do it all if there's no other way to make it happen. Um, Everybody said the same thing. Plays come all kinds of ways. Daryl's had plays from not-for-profits. Elizabeth spent a long time developing a play from the works of Gershwin. There's all kinds of things, but it's hustle. And if you love it, you'll hustle. And the theater takes care of its own, trust me. If you love it and you work at it, things will come out okay. You'll get your shot. You'll get your chance. You'll get your play. It'll happen. And you'll have a lot of heartbreak, too. But have a lot of fun. I promise you that. Your life will never be boring. To play, up on, to play up on what Liz was saying, when people say, well, what do you do? What does a producer do? The, short, the shorthand of that is nothing happens without the producer making it happen. Either they're doing it themselves, sweeping the floor, or they're delegating it. But they know everything that's going on, and it's happening because they've made it happen. I do. I'm, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Go ahead, Steve. Um, I do think, though, some training in the arts, in the uh, performing arts, and loving to read scripts and going to theater and seeing a lot of uh, related uh, uh, of music, dance, drama, experimental theater, everything. I mean, meaning honing your aesthetic skills. I think is a great idea so that you really get a, a terrific overview as well as a very profound sense of what is. I Good. agree with you. I also think that being educated is important yeah. to continue an education in the theater. Mm -hmm. You can throw it away afterwards, but know the background, have some, some background on theater education. I think it's very important. I would also say all of us, as you know, are passionate about the theater, and as Liz said, we're all in love with it. I would say to you that if you're lucky, like we are, and you're in love with the theater, you can go for it, but no matter what it is, you're very young and you don't always know what you want to do now, but for those of you who do, just go for it. The important thing is to go for it, and if you don't know what you want to do now, you may know what you want to do five years from now, but have a passion for what you want to do. I mean, it's very important, and it'll take you anywhere you want to go. We're really very lucky. We found out what we want to do, we do it reasonably well. We can make a living doing it. I wouldn't put away making a living because even though you love something, you have to know that you can support yourself somewhat. But my advice to you, and I'm sure all of us feel that way, is find something in your life as long as it takes you to do it and feel that your dream can come true. You just have to go for it and be single-minded, and it will happen. And I'd make, like to, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, make like the way to do it because <clears throat> I remember... Um, reading a few weeks ago, I don't know if any of you read it, about a young woman 
who wanted to produce and had never produced before. And where she lived, she took the basement in her house mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. set up a theater, a makeshift theater. It's in the West invited Village. her friends in the village, and she said, I am going to get writers. I know writers. I'm going to produce. Not collecting a lot of money, just opening up her house and having people come. Who knows what comes from that, but it's a passion. It's what all of us have that are sitting here feel about being producers. And I remember, oh, I guess it was about 25 years ago, um, when I was with the late Bernie Jacobs, who was a wonderful, wonderful uh, producer and man of the theater, and we went to see a little show called Ain't Misbehaving. And we got stuck in an elevator in some tiny little building that Lynn Meadows was producing this show about Fat Swaller, about the story of Fat Swaller and his light through his music. And all of us were stuck in that elevator and all of us felt this wonderful, wonderful surge of excitement and of energy that came from this music. And we said, we're going to produce it. And that's how it starts. You feel it. And then you try to go with it in the best possible way you can. Did you get out of the I would add one thing to what Fran said, that you all have to be passionate about whatever it is you do. But you also have to have another element. And I think it's not being afraid <coughs> to fail. You have to know that failure is part of this business. It's a big part of this business. And I think you just can't be afraid of that. And don't let that keep you from doing something. Because as Liz alluded to earlier, it's a big cycle of life. And some of these wonderful plays that you're mad and passionate and in love with will not work, either critically or otherwise, artistically, who knows. And it's a heartbreak. But don't let it stop you from getting started. And certainly don't let it stop you from continuing. There's a sign in my office that has a quote on it by Bertolt Brecht. And it says, fail. Fail again better. <laughs> and it's a very apt quote if you're going to be a producer. Very good. May I now ask if there are any questions that any of you have for the people on this panel and the producers on this panel? Would you like to start? My name is Rachel McMichael, and I have a question for the panel. When you are passionate about theater and in love with it, what obligation do you have to give back to the community and share with the world? I'll start that, if I may. I think one important thing is to think about the material that you're going to produce. In giving back to the world, you're giving what it is you're producing. And there are a number of plays and opportunities that really feed into our culture, either reflecting it or teaching us about something that we need to know and understand or giving us a new way to look at it. So I think what we give back to the community is what we're putting out there as producers. I think also that all, all, all the plays at Pan Asian uh, not only resonate uh, for all audiences, it's, uh, even though we are a company of Asian American actors, uh, the, the, the work has to, to speak to uh, all people. But we also have a very important educational component. And that is, that's for us, that's very, very important. And we invite a lot of <coughs> different students of different ages and seniors. Um, it's a way of our outreach. Mm -hmm. very, very often also uh, people will say, oh, you can't do a play about that subject. Daryl did wit. I did Children of a Lesser God. Entertainment is what the theater is about, but there are different phases and different levels of entertainment. Awareness 
is something that's very important and giving back to the world through that. May I ask another question? Hello. Have another question? My name is Ashley Holmes. Um, if you wanted to pursue a career in producing or directing, which route through school, meaning college, would you take? Well, there's several ways. You could either apply to an um, undergraduate school that had a strong department in theater or even a strong department, department in the humanities. One of the things that we were discussing before is that it's, it's obviously beneficial to you if you have a background in this discipline, but you can come to it from very many different areas. I'm, I was actually trained as an archaeologist and have a PhD <laughs> in archaeology. And, you know, I think of the wonderful director, Mike Ockrent, who was a physicist and then gave, you know, so much back to all of us mm -hmm. in the theater. So you can come from many different directions, but if you want to do training, there are many wonderful programs in the in theater um, that uh, you could become involved in. You could become an intern in one of our offices and learn by doing. Dasha and I were talking about yesterday the fact that this is a an industry in which um, doing it, you can learn it, because I mm -hmm. certainly didn't study it. I love sitting in audiences and still do, but I learned by, by doing. A lot of entree is through internships, is volunteering your time. You may get a nominal amount of, you know, money um, and payment for your efforts, but nominal. Um, there are, it, throughout the, our community, the offices are always looking for interns, people who want to come in, spend time, get exposure, meet people gain access to rehearsals, to backstage. Uh, you just want to get your foot in the door, and uh, volunteering your time is the way to do it. And keep mm -hmm. your ears and eyes open, because you will learn a lot that way. Um, hi, my name is Veronica, and um, my question is, what do you think is the most important quality that someone should possess in order to become a successful producer? <laughs> Passion. Tenacity. 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 Yeah, just say. Perseverance. <laughs> yeah. Perseverance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You gotta be curious. Mm -hmm. Yes? Hi, my name is Nicole Stoika, and my question is How do you find a theater for your shows? Ah. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Well, I think we should start by saying that there are off-off-Broadway theaters, there are off-Broadway theaters, and then there are Broadway theaters, if we're speaking about New York specifically. And in other cities around the country, there are regional theaters. There are theaters in schools. There are theaters in barns. There are theaters at any level. In your basement of your house, like In the basement of a house. Lady. Um, I think you have to think about the size of the project and the scope of the project. And if you're renting a space or if you're just making it work because of your tenacity and creativity and ingenuity. You know, a theater is where something happens inside. But if you have a project, you have a production, how do you get the theater? You knock on the door. It's unique. Mm -hmm. The industry is very unique. It's not like television or film where you have to find a distributor and you have to go through this network and have, where there's a hierarchy of finding a distribution source for your, your project that you're doing. Each play, each musical is completely independent and the theaters are owned, sometimes are owned by big corporations and what have you, but if nothing else, if you don't know who's there, you go knock on the door and you say, who's, who owns the theater? How do I f find out how I can, you know, possibly rent the theater and 
when you go in with your project, you are renting the theater from them. And there's a lot of different ways that deals could be structured. The theater owner can participate, cannot participate, but it's really just knocking on the door and finding out who owns it. Do you the rent a theater? How do you do that? How do you handle Well, if theater? you're producing for Broadway, which, which I, uh, Barry and I happen to do, there are three major uh, theater owners, the Jujamsons, the Nederlanders, and the Schuberts. And if you're producing for Broadway, you have to work in any of those three establishments. When they're in trouble, and there aren't too many shows coming in, and there are shows that look like they may close, they love you. They court you. They take you to lunch, <laughs> occasionally even dinner. <laughs> but when they're full, which they happen to be now, we happen to be, be doing a new show, and we're frantically uh, looking for a theater, and we're having a very, very hard time. It's supposed to happen this year, and uh, obviously you wouldn't know that, but all the theaters this year are taken. And as a, as a person who produces, I never want another show to fail. I mean, I don't think any mm -hmm. of us feel that way. I think it's much more, much tougher in the movie industry where they want each one mm -hmm. wants everyone to fail. <laughs> but there's more money at stake and a lot of other things. But, but the thing is, we have to see if anything does close or if something changes and isn't ready to come in that they thought would be ready to come in so that we can bring our show in this year. Fran, that happened with you with Chicago. Yeah, there was and no with the Schubert with the Schubert organization. And the Nederlanders. And, and the, the Nederlanders. They didn't want our show. <laughs> we ended up going to one theater for nine weeks. That's all they would allow us to be there. And then we, were, then we had to leave and go to another theater. And in order to leave and go to another theater, because nobody wanted the show, they made us pay for the move. Mm -hmm. The move can be a half a million dollars. I mean, the move isn't $20. Mm. So, you, so it, was, it was really very hard. And then, of course, we had this great success, and they all called and said, <laughs> why didn't you stay with us? <laughs> but that was later. I remember years ago also when you asked about where do you take a show, I remember seeing in a church that was the artistic director was a woman named Lynn Austin, and she had this young woman there that did puppets, mm. and, I, and she had asked Julie. me to come. And I said, to see puppets, and I'm producing? I mean, why puppets? And of course I went, and it was Julie, the Tamar. Julie, Julie Tamar, Tamar doing Juan Darien, and that was the first place. And that was at St. Clement's. And that was at St. Clement's yeah, Church. We, we, we produced for a lot. Yeah, the size of the theater and the number of seats is actually very relevant to the scope of your project, because the unions are, are, are you're going to, the unions categorize what level you're going to be working on, uh, which contract with the actors and with the other unions, um, uh, depending on the number of seats. And so Broadway, I think, is characterized as 500 and up. Or four, uh, and then off-Broadway is 100 to 499, and off-Broadway is under 99. So that does determine a little bit um, the kind of theater that you're going into. Yeah. And location. Yeah. I'd also add that there's a whole new wave of alternative spaces in New York, and um, it's very exciting for certain pieces of theater that don't actually fit the mold of a proscenium stage and find the right match for the kind of piece that it is. There are a lot of interesting alternative spaces, and that's sometimes I, easier to find. I had a very interesting experience last year where I did the first cross-cultural show called uh, Four Guys Named Jose and Una Mujer Named Maria, and we did not want to go into a 
standard theater because we wanted the audience to feel the participation and to be involved in it. So, as Daryl said, we found an alternate space, which was called, which was the Blue Angel, and ended up playing there for mm -hmm. ten and a half months, and then yet went into a, a, a theater in Miami, where there was a very large Hispanic population, and they were supposed to take us for three weeks, and we ended up there five and a half months. So, if you're if people respond to what you're doing, and they like it, just find any space, just do it, as we all agree. Yes. Hi, my name is Nagina Mitchell, and like each of you sort of like hinted and agreed that in order to like make it in producing, you have to have passion and love for producing. And I was wondering that if in any time of each of your careers that did you like kind of have second thoughts or just like I don't want to say giving up, but like pursue different interests. That's my question. I think maybe all of us have felt that way. Since I'm a convert, you know, converts are always the truest believers. I had another career and came into this one, so I've, I've never looked back and, and haven't um, had a hiatus. But I, I don't think many of us take no. hi hiatuses, no. do we? Um, it's also that theater is so all-encompassing. I mean, there's just every day, every aspect of theater is so different and so exciting. And you could spend ten lifetimes pursuing each aspect and if you really wanted to specialize in it. I mean... <laughs> I think so. the other thing to say is that, you know, you sometimes feel a little down if you put a play on and it isn't well received and you're so depressed and you think, oh God, what am I doing this for? And you say that for a while until you read the next play that excites you or until you, you know, somebody comes with, with an idea to you and, and you just, you know, you can feel down. It's a normal human reaction. No one's expecting you to be excited about the fact that something you really felt so strongly about didn't work. So, of course, you feel a little bit like, all right, maybe I should rethink this. Um, I, uh, I think, f speaking for most of us and myself for, uh, particularly, uh, I've never wanted to, to be anything but a producer. And I love it, and I'm going to stay with it, and success or failure, I'm going to stay with it. But I don't think there's anything wrong in choosing a career and finding out you just don't like it, you're not doing well enough in it, um, whatever the reason, and in making a change. We don't happen to feel that way, but I, don't, I think it's perfectly all right not to feel depressed because you failed at something mm -hmm. or didn't succeed in something. You just go on to the next thing. Um, I remember at one time I wanted to be something totally I worked in a travel agent, and I thought the greatest thing, a travel agency, and I thought the greatest thing was to be a travel agent and go all around the world and not pay for it <laughs> and have everybody take care of me, and it would be just wonderful. And then I met a man, and you know who the man is, and uh, uh, he was in theater, and I got involved because of him, and now, you know, I, I'll never leave it. Where do you come from? Can I ask around here? Where? New Jersey, Pennsylvania. Oh, I grew up in Arkansas. In Boston. Michigan. New York. New Jersey. Chongqing, China, and New York. <laughs> New York. New York. It's, it's a wonderful area to, to be in. I think the one subject that we really haven't touched, and it is so important today, is the marketing of a show. And as a producer, you are responsible for that, and the costs of putting the advertising on television or in the media has become 
very, very exorbitant and yet necessary. Liz, would you like to comment on this, how important well, it is? It's a, it's a tricky situation because once we produce a play, our, our costs don't end. I mean, keeping it on till it finds an audience is an yes. ongoing problem. <clears throat> you know, you've all heard of things like my big fat Jewish wedding, a Greek wedding. Wasn't a Greek wedding? <laughs> 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 it's all the same. It's all the same. Well, you know what I mean. Uh, uh, it was just a little movie, and it just went on a couple places. It didn't cost them anything to keep it on and running, and eventually one friend told another, and the next thing you know, it was a big fat Greek hit. So our problem is that we have to continue to pay actors, continue to pay rent to theater, and everything else. So we are always juggling how much we can spend on the advertising, spend on the marketing effort, and sustain ourselves financially. When we do plays, we hope we try to open with a very healthy reserve to cover losses and a very healthy advertising budget. Sometimes if things go wrong, and they can, the reserve gets shrunk and there is no reserve. So then you dip into the advertising budget. But um, the theater has become much more sophisticated about advertising. But at the same time, it's kind of like sheep and goats all the time in the theater business. Years ago, the answer to every advertising problem was a TV commercial. Get on television. And you'd turn on CBS and you'd see six shows and 30-second spots in three minutes. And then advertising on, the th on television became so expensive, everybody got off television and started putting up big signs around Manhattan. <laughs> so that, and now everybody does discount mailings. So that there are all... Um, and the Internet. And the internet, yes. Big I mean, part now. oh well, Amy and I have been playing with the internet. That really—that's huge now in theater yeah. and, and any marketing. You know, buses, buses, email. But I still class, think yeah. that you cannot underestimate word of mouth. Mm. And somehow or other, if something is good in the theater, people find it and will tell the next person, and the word starts buzz. The buzz starts in, and. Um, you hear about How do you get it? However, you, however, before you can have word of mouth, you have to get the show up there <laughs> so, that sure. people, so that people can talk about it. And marketing, advertising, and promotion, I think, is everything. I think mm -hmm. it's really, really important. Um, you can just think about yourselves. If you're running for president of your uh, class or if you're running for anything, you have to market yourself. You have to promote yourself. There has to be a buzz about that. And it's the same thing about what we're doing. Before we open, there has to be a buzz. We all know the elections are coming up. You can't turn on television without hearing something. You can't open the New York Times without seeing something about the candidates. They're marketing themselves. They're promoting themselves. So it happens in every industry, particularly, of course, in theater, where if, if you happen to be in the middle of New York City, you see buses, and the buses mm -hmm. have signs. Hopefully they say Chicago on them. <laughs> uh, but, but that's another but area of the theater that you can go into. You don't necessarily have to be a dancer, a singer, or a producer. You can go into the advertising end of it. You can go into the promotion end of it. Mm -hmm. It's all, all places that you can go to. Mm -hmm. You can even become a critic. Yes. Reviews are very important. Good reviews are good reviews. How good do we get inexpensive tickets to go to the theater? Is there a rush? Is there any way that you can get tickets that are not 
Mm -hmm. So Duffy Square. There are lots of ways you can yeah. get discounted tickets. I mean, I'm involved with something that's uh, a little alternative called De La Guarda, and we have rush tickets every night for students because the audience is a much younger audience and they can't afford a normal Broadway ticket price. We have discount mailers for all shows that I think all of us are involved mm -hmm. with. We have promotions that go out. We have enter to win uh, contests on the internet. We have discount tickets. But and are there any discounts for, for students? Yes, always. Always. We always How have student discount. Well, usually a student can go to the box office and show their ID, and they'll be in the, in the uh, box office system, there'll be a student prize. I didn't know that. Almost all of us do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Does that mean all theaters? Yes, yeah. pretty Almost much. All of us. Mm -hmm. And, and we what kind of discount do you get? Sometimes we the tickets are $20, sometimes they're less, more. I'm we frequently about set aside a set number Why of tickets. Why don't we know about it? Um, that's a marketing issue as well, I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, well, we're not going to give you a student discount. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why not. <laughs> I should get something, oh. some kind of discount. <laughs> 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 yeah. But I think it's important to go usually, to the uh, Isabel, usually this is listed in the ABCs in the New York Times. Usually it says student we, discount student, tickets or student rush. That. You know, in the advertising that the shows are responsible for, usually there's but you, you never advertise that. You never tell anybody about in the that. In the newspaper, we sometimes we put we it in our in ads, in the ABCs. Mm -hmm. For example, when we um, produced um, Top Dog Underdog, which closed in September, we had the first two rows set aside for students at $20 tickets. Um, and, many, and many shows have that. Flower mm -hmm. Drum Song, we have many student discounts. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to hear that. There's also the High Five program that which I think is a all great of us program. participate yeah. in. Mm -hmm. and Kids Night on Broadway. Kids Night on Broadway. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of a lot of different ways that you can see a show, and also try to produce a show. Doesn't have to go by the direct way that we're all that one particular way to do it. Are there any other questions? Do Could I ask you a question? Have a question. Yeah. Yes. I I, I have a question about uh, how how much do uh, reviews play? And in, in, in promoting a show and sustaining, I think all of you have shows running that are running very successfully, despite whatever good, bad, indifferent, lukewarm reviews, and yet that's that question the best word of takes it takes into consideration. I think just about everything that we've been talking about tonight. What you do with a show before you come to New York, uh, in terms of. It going on the road, uh, generating word of mouth, the out-of-town reviews, how you can use those in your marketing campaign to make it so that when you arrive in town or when you're going to be opening up your show, uh, getting people to know what you are and uh, uh, that you know what is interesting about it, why someone should come. Uh, the marketing program, the discounting tickets, uh, getting the most important thing you have a show that nobody knows what it is the most important thing to do the minute that you open up those doors is to have those seats full because you want people there's nothing like word of mouth to generate interest a friend of, you, of yours tells you go see this show I saw it it's great that's going to make you go and see it much quicker than any advertisement mm -hmm. is going yeah. to and so all of these components really they strengthen you to be able to transcend a mediocre or negative review. A positive review was wonderful. In, in fact, mo most of the big hits on Broadway didn't get good reviews. I, the first show <laughs> I was ever involved with was Les Miserables, and it got lousy reviews. Cameron called me in the next day and said, do your investors want their money back? And we said no, because we all loved it, and everyone in the audience loved it. And 
obviously, um, a lot of people around the world loved it as well. You know, the reviews, it, if you have a good show, if you believe in your show, if you market your show, if you put quotes out from the reviews, even if they're not great reviews, people, apparently people remember the quotes and not the reviews, if you're able to um, keep that momentum going. Um, I think we're coming to a close here. However, I would like to just say one thing. I think we have gotten from this panel that we're not just women producers. We are producers. And I think maybe ultimately we should call this panel the producers. <laughs> and for after all, if we make the decisions to produce a play or a musical, we are challenged to assemble the best creative team, an artistic team, and we raise the money, find the appropriate venue to put the show, and follow through the production from the first reading of the script to the very last performance. This has nothing to do with gender. It's about passion that we've all spoken about. It's about perseverance. And it's about commitment and excellence in the theater, which is also what the American Theater Wing stands for, as Isabel said. So on that note, I would like to really thank all of you for this participation and, the, and the, who have shared with us and with our audience the knowledge, the experience, and the time that you've given. We've hope, I hope that you've all enjoyed this as much as I have. I thank you, and it's been an American Theatre Wing seminar on working in the theatre coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Tisa. Thank you, Daryl. Thank you very much.